0: I was clear with President Putin that we could have gone further, but I chose not to do so. To be I chose to be proportionate.
1: The Biden administration is striking a very different tone from the Trump administration and its relationship with Russia. On Thursday, President Biden announced sweeping new sanctions against Russia over its alleged interference in the 2020 election, cyber attacks and mounting aggression near the Ukraine border. The administration is also expelling 10 Russian diplomats from the United States.
0: The United States is not looking to kick off a cycle of, ex- of escalation and conflict with Russia. We want a stable, predictable relationship.
1: On Friday, the Russian government responded to President Biden by announcing the expulsion of 10 U.S. diplomats. I'm Tanzina Vega, and the latest on Biden's Russia strategy is where we start today on The Takeaway. For more on this, I spoke Friday morning to Natasha Bertrand, White House correspondent at Politico, who covers national security and foreign policy, and Michael McFaul, former U.S. ambassador to Russia and a professor of political science at Stanford University. Our interview taped before the news broke that Russia would be expelling 10 U.S. diplomats. We'll start with you, Michael, as a former ambassador to Russia. When you heard about Biden's uh, sanctions, your immediate reaction
2: uh, I thought it was a great move. I thought it was smart to bundle their actions, so there not only were there sanctions, but there were the expulsions of so-called diplomats, but really uh, Russian intelligence agents. Um, and they also r- responded to a variety of things, particularly the solar winds uh, cyber attack and the election of fi- uh, interference from last year. And I thought they were trying to bundle together a response to the past to put a period to it all and now move forward to the future. And that's exactly what the president outlined in his remarks yesterday.
1: Natasha, in terms of some of the details about the economic sanctions, what do we know so far?
0: Yeah, so the most significant economic sanctions that the administration imposed were essentially to stop um, financial firms in the United States from dealing in newly issued Russian debt. So that restriction will go into effect on June 14th um, in order to allow institutions to kind of understand the ban and prepare for it. And, you know, it's an effort to exploit Russia's economy right now in a way in order to put pressure on Moscow. Um, You know, it's it's more of a warning right now than a than a very sharp penalty because it doesn't stop U.S. institutions from dealing in previously issued Russian bonds and it doesn't apply to foreign banks or investment firms, um, you know, the way that the U.S. extended the reach of of sanctions on Iran. Um, But it is, you know, a a significant move when it's paired with all of these other sanctions against Russian, uh, you know, intelligence officers, um, companies that have supported Russia's malign activities, um, people that were involved in the annexation of Crimea. Um, It is a It is a sign to Putin and the Kremlin that the United States is prepared to uh, do things that will, you know, maybe not right at this moment, but that will uh, negatively affect Russia's economy and and ability to uh, be a player on the international stage and on the in the international markets.
1: Michael, once again, as we know, Russia is building uh, there's a buildup of Russian troops near Ukraine. Uh, I would imagine that is also playing into Biden's calculus here.
2: Well, the Biden administration is very worried about that buildup. It's the largest buildup of Russian troops on the border there since the war began in 2014. Uh, I want to emphasize that there already is a war uh, ongoing. This would just be an escalatory measure. Um, But it was very striking to me yesterday in the rollout and especially in the president's remarks that they did not link any of these measures that they announced to what is going on in Ukraine. Uh, And I think that was very deliberate, that they're trying to say this is in response to past behavior, Uh, behavior, by the way, that took place during the Trump administration. Um, And now we want to move forward in a different way. The the, the vice president, uh, the the president, he was the vice president when I worked with him. Um, The president said we are proportionately responding to what they are doing and we want to be able to engage when it's in our interests. And he talked about A meeting with Putin uh, and he talked about uh, beginning strategic stability talks. And they also hinted, as Natasha just rightly pointed out, that this gives them the power. There's a new presidential executive order to escalate sanctions if there would be further belligerent actions by Vladimir Putin.
1: We also mentioned the uh, expulsion of 10 Russian diplomats from Washington. And and Michael, you you, uh, said that they were um, almost Russian intelligence agents, really. Natasha, what do we know about that expulsion so far? How significant was that in in D.C.? They
0: were... Uh, people that were in the United States in a way that was inconsistent with their status here. And that's according to senior administration officials who were speaking to reporters yesterday. They wouldn't go into detail about uh, the identities of of these Russians, only to say that, only to indicate and imply that these were, um, you know, uh, individuals that were acting in in intelligence capacity for for the Russian government. So this has happened before. Um, This is uh, often a way of sending a signal to the Russians or to any other government and that their uh, malign activity won't be tolerated. And of course, it kind of prevents uh, the Russians... For, from carrying out certain activities in in the United States um, by kind of limiting their intelligence gathering capabilities, um, ten is not a ton. Um, back when uh, Sergei Skripal, the the Russian uh, uh, defector, was was poisoned in the UK by the by the Russian government by Russian government uh, services, he uh, there were about thirty um, intelligence officers that were expelled from the United States. But it's still it's still uh, Signal, and it's still an important move. The question is, what are the Russians going to do in response? There's, they're likely going to expel U.S. uh, diplomats uh, from the United from Russia in response to this activity, which could, of course, limit our own uh, intelligence gathering capabilities there.
1: Michael, your thoughts on that? Because I'm wondering whether or not um, this this package, as we're as we're discussing, is going to uh, further. I mean, we know that. Uh, Russia's not happy about this. Is there is there going to be some sort of retaliation, do you suspect?
2: Uh, Absolutely.
1: Uh, That's what I predict. Um, uh,
2: You know, it'll be interesting to see if it's proportional or whether it's escalatory. Uh, But I have no doubt that they will expel 10 American diplomats uh, in a tit for tat reaction. And then the key, I mean, the Russian press today and surrogates for Putin and yesterday all criticized it, called it illegal, as you would expect. I think the real interesting response will be uh, when Putin finally responds and does he escalate uh, or does he say, "Okay, now we're uh, even keel here. Here's our response. And now I'm going to accept your invitation to meet. Um, That, I think, is what the administration uh, is looking to you know to know what the real reaction is, and I want to be clear. I think it was a mistake actually to offer a summit. Um, I don't. It, it sends the wrong message. You build up. You act. You act like a bad actor in the international system in Ukraine, and then you're offered a summit. I would not have done that. Uh, Where I am the government. Well, and hope, and, and you've worked
1: in, in in this capacity before, Michael. I mean, we we know yes, that I President to, Trump yeah. had a summit of sorts or a visit with uh, president putin um why would the biden administration offer that as well
2: well first a couple of things i hope they don't go back to helsinki <laughs> where president trump and president putin met i think that will go down in history as one of the worst if not the worst summit in american history Re- remember that's when uh when pressed by at, at the press uh, conference Uh, Trump was asked, do you you support your intelligence community's assessment about what Russia did interfering on our elections in 2016, or do you you agree with Putin? And he said, I agree with Putin. Um, uh, That said, I want to be clear. I think it's very important to meet with leaders, including leaders of your adversaries. Uh, The worst thing in the world in diplomacy is to have a conflict based on misperceptions or bad information. Uh, So the meeting should happen. But what happens when you say it's a summit and it's a standalone summit as opposed to meeting on the sidelines of a multilateral gathering, right? And you're right. I used to work at the White House and plan these summits uh, for Barack Obama before I went to Moscow. Um, Once you do that, then guess what? We're all watching. Natasha is going to be there. We're all Mm going to be looking in tea leaves and we're going to and there's not going to be deliverables, right? There's not going to be a breakthrough. So you're setting yourself up, I think, for. Uh, expectations that can't be met but they've said it i putin has to accept it and we'll see what happens you know my one caveat would be i would want them to meet with president zelensky from ukraine first before they meet with uh, vladimir putin remember the impeachment the second the the second peach impeachment was all about um uh putting conditions uh before mr zelensky before he would have his oval office meeting I think to clean up that really bad history and put U.S.-Ukraine relations back on more stable footing, he should finally have an Oval Office meeting with President Biden.
1: Natasha, some really good points uh, Michael raises there. First of all, I want to go back to um, the relationship and the Helsinki-Trump-Putin uh, summit, where, uh, Michael, it's a good reminder there that President Trump roundly uh, uh, said he did not trust his own national uh, security intelligence um, Folks, Natasha, what is the Biden administration approach to national security and intelligence right now? And how is that relationship being, I guess, repaired, if you will, in light of these new sanctions and new information about Russia? So the administration has really emphasized um,
0: stability and predictability in its relationship with Russia. That's that's what it wants to go back to. And, you know, there are some people who would call it a kind of reset. Um, I don't think the Biden administration would want to call it a reset because that is something that the Obama administration tried with Russia early on and it didn't work. Um, So I think their approach more is just to it's it's pretty consistent with past administrations, with the exception of, of Donald Trump himself, which is to hold Russia accountable and in, in the areas where it's acting in uh, an aggressive or way or out of step with international law um, and work with Russia in other areas like nuclear treaties and perhaps uh, counterterrorism in certain parts of the world, although that has not really uh, panned out. Um, And, you know, a particularly important issue for for Joe Biden is climate. Um, They think that the Russians uh, have an important role in that area as well, which is why Russia was invited to this climate summit that the president is hosting uh, next week. So I I think that they just want um, to have a stable and predictable relationship with Russia, but But whether that's possible is another question entirely. I mean, there are many, many analysts and experts on Russia who say that, you know, part of Putin's whole strategy is to be unpredictable. Um, So it it remains to be seen whether this is going to work. I think that offering a summit at this point where Russia is clearly saber rattling and threatening to to invade Ukraine, frankly, was was surprising
1: to a lot of people. That was Natasha Bertrand, White House correspondent at Politico, and Michael McFaul, former U.S. ambassador to Russia. We spoke to them both Friday morning before Russia announced the expulsion of 10 U.S. diplomats in response to the Biden administration's sanctions and expulsions. Earlier this week, U.S. Secretary of Defense Lloyd Austin traveled to Israel to meet with Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu and Defense Minister Benny Gantz. The visit was a signal from the Biden administration that Israel remains an important ally for the United States. But Secretary Austin's trip also came at a chaotic moment in Israeli politics. Prime Minister Netanyahu is currently attempting to form a majority coalition in the country's parliament. This after the fourth Israeli election in the past two years once again ended without a clear path forward for any of Israel's leading political parties. Meanwhile, Netanyahu is also currently on trial in a corruption case that could drag on for years. And the U.S. and Israel's conflicting approaches to policy with Iran were underscored in recent days. This week, Israel was reportedly responsible for an attack at a key nuclear site in Iran. And that attack took place as U.S. negotiators are attempting to reenter the Iran nuclear deal. Joining me now is Noga Tarnopolsky, a freelance reporter based in Israel. Noga, always great to have you on. Wonderful to hear you, Tanzina. So as we mentioned, Secretary Austin's visit to Israel came at the same time as the attack on an an Iranian nuclear site that Israel is allegedly believed to be responsible for. How did the timing of that color Austin's visit to Israel?
3: I have to say, I think it kind of overshadowed the visit because Netanyahu was, instead of being able to show off in a way that he was meeting with the new U.S. Secretary of Defense, He was forced to scramble, uh, his office was, to explain why a top Israeli official had leaked the news to the New York Times and thus endangered this entire operation in Iran, which is a massive intelligence operation that clearly had been in the works for more than a year, let's say. And so I would say it overshadowed it. Austin, from the very beginning, appeared to want to make this a working visit. Um, That was my impression. He made no statements that could even appear quotable. He met with the defense minister and spent a lot of time, I think, reinforcing the -the um, behind-the-scenes Israeli-American military and intelligence ties, and that was more or less it.
1: We know that President Obama and uh, Netanyahu had a, uh, I would say, Distant relationship, um, very different from the relationship that President Trump and Netanyahu had. What do you see uh, President Biden's uh, relationship with Netanyahu sort of turning out to be based on uh, what we know so far?
3: I think um, that what we see so far in the first 100 days is President Biden being really very shrewd. And using the experience that he accrued as Obama's vice president and as the longtime head of the Senate Foreign Relations Committee to basically uh, keep relations with Israel good, but keep Benjamin Netanyahu in a bind in terms of his ability to shake things up. And given the anomalous. Relations that existed between Israel and the United States, both under Obama, where relations were personally terrible, and under Trump, where it was sort of you scratch my back, I'll scratch your back relationship. It's really interesting to observe um, what appears to me right now, you know, Biden, the Biden administration's cleverness. And I have to uh, say, the new Under Secretary of State um, for Israel and Palestine is a man called Hadi Amr, who we've barely heard anything about, but he has the reputation of being very knowledgeable, very shrewd and very behind the scenes. And I suspect that we're seeing his handling of the matter here.
1: We also know that the Biden administration announced last week that it will reinstate $200 million in aid to Palestinians that was cut by former President Donald Trump. What does that signal about the U.S. approach to Israel and Palestine compared to uh, what it was like under the Trump administration?
3: Paradoxically, I think we have to see this as um, a parallel to the Austin visit, meaning The Biden administration is trying to reset relations with Israel to what should be, from the U.S. point of view, an acceptable norm. And what that means, on the one hand, is that uh, the defense secretary comes to Israel, you know, when he's going also to Germany to visit NATO and to the U.K., basically the most powerful, putting Israel in the cadre of the United States' most important allies so, on the one hand, reinforcing that, and on the other hand, telling Israel we are going to act vis a vis the Palestinians and also vis a vis the Iran deal as we see fit for US interests. And uh, the Biden administration made it very clear that Israel is more than invited to sit at the table, more than invited to give its opinion. In fact, uh, the national security advisor, Jake Sullivan personally invited the Israeli national security advisor to come specifically to bring the Israeli point of view to the Iran uh, situation. And yet that also kind of muscles Netanyahu in because he's not in a position to attack Biden supposedly for being another Obama when the secretary of defense is here
1: or the secretary of state. And and not only that, but Netanyahu's own political future is in question. I mean, he is uh, in a trial right now and um, there are still questions about his own political future. So how would that play out with Biden?
3: Well, how that plays out is actually that we should pay attention to to how Biden is managing, I would have to say, Netanyahu. Netanyahu is in a desperate situation. He's on trial for severe crimes He has failed to win an election four times in a row. And in any other parliamentary democracy, um, his party would have kicked him out after four failures and elected a new leader. The Likud, Netanyahu's party, has shrunk and has become almost a personality cult. And so that's not happening. And Israel's trapped in that situation right now.
1: Noga Tarnapolsky is a freelance reporter based in Israel who writes for the L.A. Times and the Daily Beast. Noga, thanks so much. Thanks to you. As we continue our look at foreign policy under the Biden administration, we turn now to Asia. This week, Japan's Prime Minister Yoshihide Suga is visiting D.C., making him the first foreign head of state to meet with President Biden. Recently, territorial and political disputes between China and Japan have only escalated. And with the U.S. siding with Japan, this week's meeting between President Biden and Prime Minister Suga can be seen as a signal towards a broader approach to the region by the United States. Motoko Rich is the Japan bureau chief for The New York Times, and we spoke with her on Friday morning before the summit. So let's break down what exactly is China doing that is warranting the, this response? Take, and we'll start by taking a look at the Sinkaku Islands. What's happening there?
4: So these islands, I mean, in some ways it's kind of uh, curious because they're basically a pile of rocks. It's a string of very small uninhabited islands and there's some value to them in terms of the fishing rights around them but they are more symbolic in a lot of ways than, than a matter of reality, but they are disputed territory. So Japan claims the islands and calls them the Senkakus. China also claims them as their own and calls them the DLU. And they have been fighting over them for a long time. And uh, at the moment, uh, the U.S. recognizes Japan's ability to um, administer these islands, such as they are, and so China sends boats into water, territorial waters, or waters that are contiguous with territorial waters, as a kind of sort of goosing um, uh, exercise to say we're here and we're, we're 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 kind of nudging around. And Japan doesn't like that, and so Japan has sought numerous times reassurance from the United States as its most important ally that the treaty between the two countries does cover protection of these islands in the event that China should try to invade them. And so from time to time, it it, it seems like there's a possibility of an actual conflict arising in that there, the, the boats of the Chinese are sending are coming more frequently or staying longer in the territorial waters or contiguous waters. And that's sort of been what the escalation has been there And so that's a in particular relation to Japan, um, but there's a lot more going on across the region. And so the United States is not only interested in talking to Japan about protecting Japan's territorial rights, but also partnering Japan to create a kind of sense of a, a bulwark against China's increasing influence and military assertiveness around the region.
1: And what about what's happening in the Taiwan Strait?
4: So there, again, the Chinese who regard Taiwan as a rogue territory and the Taiwanese are, its Taiwan is a small democratic island. And for a long time, as you know, the United States has had this approach uh, known as strategic ambiguity, where they don't officially recognize Taiwan as an independent country, but as part of one China. But the Chinese government, the mainland Chinese government has been sending um Warplanes to fly near the shores, again, kind of buzzing exercise to say, we're here, um, and obviously trying to send a somewhat threatening military message. And Secretary of State uh, Blinken and Secretary of Defense Austin came to Japan. They put out a statement in which they said, we recognize the importance of democracy at the Taiwan Strait and that, that, that there should not be like a military invasion. And so the question that's going to come up during this summit this week between the two leaders of Japan and the United States is, again, whether they will sort of express some kind of support for
1: Taiwan. Matoko, what is expected from the summit uh, this week?
4: Well, I think um, one of the interesting things to watch when we talk about China is that while Japan and the United States have a lot of shared interests and an interest in kind of holding back China as its power is rising in the region, they also have some differences. So the United States under the Biden administration has come out quite strongly criticizing China for its uh, human rights violations in the treatment of the Muslim Uyghurs in the Xinjiang province, whereas Japan has not been quite as explicit about that. Um, There's also uh, a little bit of daylight between the two countries and how they have talked about the coup in Myanmar, that uh, Americans have imposed sanctions against the generals. Japan has not imposed any kind of economic sanctions. And so there will probably be some kinds of conversations about how they might get a little bit closer in terms of how they uh, comment on human rights violations in the region. But there are many other topics that they have to talk about, and one of the big ones is climate change. The Biden administration has already said that they want to rejoin the Paris Agreement, so there will probably be some discussion with Japan about how both countries might change um, and improve their targets. Uh, for 2030. Both countries have talked a lot about their efforts to reduce carbon emissions. So there might be discussion about how they might cooperate on technology, renewable energy. Um, there may be some talk about trade. There's also probably going to be talk about how they can secure supply chains for really important components like semiconductors, which are important from anything from all kinds of electronics to cars. There's a global shortage of some semiconductors on at the moment. And it's in the interest of both countries to Ensure a uh, supply and not be entirely dependent on China for that supply. So they have a lot of issues to talk about, but it's unlikely to be some kind of tension filled summit. I mean, as you pointed out, this is the first foreign leader to visit the Biden White House. And so for Japan, it's considered kind of a diplomatic feather in their cap to be the first, but they're not going to be fighting over anything. This is more kind of, in some ways, a courtesy visit to reassure each other that they're still on the same page and that the alliance between the two that has endured since the end of World War II remains strong.
1: And and remind us, is there any repair work to be done here, Motoko, uh, given, uh, if you could remind us what President Trump's relationship with uh, Japan was under his administration. Right. That's a really excellent
4: and interesting question because in some ways, Japan and the United States grew very close under the Trump administration because of the personal relationship that the former prime minister Shinzo Abe worked really hard to develop that. He kind of read the psychology of President Trump and um, showered him with flattery, invited him for two visits to Japan. The second one was official state visit in which he was the first foreign leader to meet the new emperor Um, And so they cultivated this very close relationship. There was a period early on where they were talking on the phone three or four times a week about North Korea policy and all kinds of things. So I think there was a little bit of a concern When Biden won the presidential election, whether or not that personal relationship would disappear. Of course, Japan now has its own new uh, leader in Yoshihide Suga. And so he's going to be looking to develop this personal relationship. But I think there's also a little bit of relief that, on the other hand, they're not dealing with a mercurial leader who might change his policy decisions in the moment of a tweet. So not really dealing with someone who's threatening to impose tariffs at any moment or is out there demanding that they pay more for their own defense. It's much more of a measured, um, collaborative approach.
1: Motoko Rich is the Japan Bureau Chief for The New York Times. Matoko, thanks so much for joining us.
4: Thanks so much for having me.
1: This week, President Biden announced that all U.S. troops would be withdrawn from Afghanistan by September 11, 2021, bringing the country's longest war to an end. Over the course of two decades, the war in Afghanistan has cost the United States trillions of dollars. More than 2,300 U.S. military personnel have died and more than 100,000 Afghan citizens have been injured or killed. 800,000 Americans have served in Afghanistan since 2001, and here's what some of them had to tell us.
4: The Afghan war was not a very well-conceived event. It's best, uh, I think, to call it quits and to leave with as uh, much grace as can be managed. My advice to returning soldiers is to keep moving, take advantage of whatever benefits you have available, and don't stop to rest or think about all of your experience in Afghanistan, just keep moving, stay employed, don't drink,
5: don't do drugs, and help others however you can manage that. Michael went from Houston, Texas. Uh, I'm just calling to say I was a uh, Marine Corps veteran for eight years. I did two tours in Afghanistan. It almost doesn't feel real that uh, we're pulling out finally. I didn't think I would live long enough to see it. I lost a lot of good friends over there. I'm just really happy that we're finally pulling out. No conditions, nothing, because there there was nothing to win there.
2: Hi, my name is James. I'm from Cherryville, North Carolina. We in the U.S. have been engaged in conflict for almost as long as we've been a nation, many of which were unnecessary and some unjustified. U.S. wars are bankrupting the nation financially and morally. We can't even take care of our citizens that are at home, much less what we do to the families of the dead veterans and the mental or physical health of those returning home. As a nation, we can't afford to police the world. Our own history of global intervention is proof of this. The working poor fight the wars for the benefit of the ruling classes. The US military was meant for the defense of the people and nation, not colonialism.
1: Joining me now is Leo Shane, deputy editor at the Military Times, and Tim Kudo, a Marine veteran of Iraq and Afghanistan. Thanks to you both for joining me.
5: Thank you. Thanks for the invite.
1: Tim, you wrote an op-ed in the New York Times this week referring to the withdrawal of American troops in Afghanistan by September 11th. And you said, quote, although I have waited for this moment for a decade, it is impossible to feel relief. Tell us why.
6: So I think like many of the um, veterans of my generation, we joined um, after 9-11, hoping to make a difference there, whether it was uh, to avenge the attacks on New York or whether it was to help the Afghan people who were suffering from the Taliban um, long before we got involved there. And I think of the many people that we sat on dirt floors with over there drinking chai and talking about peace and how we could achieve that in their village um, and the promises that we made to stay and remain and, and help them. And now we're leaving, and we've broken all of those promises. And that's just not something that I've done, but something that thousands and thousands of veterans um, did over the past 20 years there. Um, But at the same time, I understand that it's not a war that we can win. Um, Maybe it never was. I'm not sure about that. But uh, we can't keep doing the same thing over there, um, expecting a different result, because it's just insanity
1: leo u s troops aren't being withdrawn as as Tim suggested because this war has really come to a neat ending. I mean, this is twenty years uh, and there are veterans that served in Afghanistan or are currently serving and I'm sure for them this doesn't feel like a finished war. this feels feels more like an unfinished war. is that right
5: yeah a lot of a lot of conflicted opinions about about this withdrawal. A lot of the veterans who I've spoken with sort of felt like this was the inevitable end, that there wasn't going to be some sort of clean mission accomplished sort of finale to this, that it was going to be a, a separation under uh, under questionable circumstances. So a lot of, a lot of veterans right now are struggling with that. What does it mean? What does it mean to to not have this war anymore and to not have some of those promises fulfilled? Um, but also the feeling of of fatigue. You know, a lot of a lot of veterans I talk to feel like this war was forgotten 10 years ago by the American public. So if folks aren't, uh, you know, if folks aren't paying attention, why are why are troops over there and why are they still why are they still fighting? Why are they still risking their lives?
1: Tim, I want to dig into that point, because I think that uh, I think, uh, Leo, you're right. I mean, a lot of Americans, you know, we don't hear about the war in Afghanistan, we don't see it on television, we don't hear daily updates about what's happening there, we don't hear about the fatalities, uh, whether they be Americans or Afghans. And so as someone who has served um, and is a veteran, what does that do to the psychology of veterans? And obviously, you can't speak for all people, but Just in terms of what what Leo's really pointing out there, this idea that this has been a forgotten war as well, not just the longest war.
6: So I got back from Afghanistan in, I believe, 2011. And a few weeks after I returned, um, President Obama announced that they'd killed Osama bin Laden. And so for me, having just come back from a war that was very fresh in my mind, to see people celebrating um, you know, the, his death in front of the White House, in front of Ground Zero, while I was attending a memorial for the um, Marines who died in my unit, and seeing their families and interacting with them and seeing the grief that they'd left behind, um, there was just an absolute disconnect in that moment for me um, between the war that I had experienced and the war that Americans had, as, as Americans had experienced. And it continued after that i mean i think we a lot of us thought that it would be over then at some point and 10 more years passed and you know for me during that time the specific valley that i was located in um, fell to the taliban and they destroyed the, the u.s military and the afghan military had to go in and bomb the buildings that the government had been located in to destroy the taliban and try and retake that area so everything that we had fought for that men had died for um was completely for nothing and i think that It's been very, very difficult for veterans to have experienced that on their own.
1: Tim, that's a powerful statement that it was for nothing.
6: I mean, it's absolutely true. I think, you know, we we lost to the Taliban there and we have known that that was coming for quite a while. And yet we continue to send people there to die um, for that. And I I like to believe that maybe at some point way back when before Iraq happened that, you know, it was possible for us to have achieved victory there. um, But you can't change the past. So you just have to live with it.
1: Leo, in terms of the the folks that you speak to for Military Times, is that a sentiment that a lot of them feel? What Tim is sharing right now, it's it's
5: definitely one of the conflicts. And you know, there there wasn't a there wasn't a pretty ending here. There wasn't a clear uh, finale, and and that's what folks are struggling with now, as as we're all looking at this news.
1: And and beyond that, the clear ending is it also a question of what you know that they that they didn't sort of. Win or accomplish what they were there to do.
5: Yeah, it is. It is that idea of what was the point? Why did we lose folks if we're walking away and so many conditions haven't changed? And you know, what just just what was achieved there? Um, as Tim said, after the death of Osama bin Laden, and and the president um, referenced that in his speech yesterday. What what was the point of staying? What was the point of the additional money that was spent? What was the point of the additional sacrifice? And that's something that that not just these veterans, but the country is going to be reckoning with for a long time.
1: Leo, one of the things that's been so difficult uh, to observe about this war uh, that's been going on for two decades is the number of times that U.S. troops have been deployed. Uh, According to The Washington Post, nearly 30,000 U.S. troops were deployed to Afghanistan at least five times. There has to be some fallout from that, whether it's psychological, economic. Five five deployments just seems um,
5: intense. Well, this this has been something that the military has been dealing with for the last decade, not just with Iraq, but not just with Afghanistan, with, with Iraq as well, trying to figure out how do they balance, um, you know, how do they... How do they make up for that time lost? You know, some of that is just time to recuperate, time to reset, but a lot of that is, you know, is, is missed uh, missed births, missed funerals, missed time with family, um, time that has taken a, a psychological toll on top of just the physical toll that that it takes. And we saw that, uh, you know, during these two wars, increased use of of the National Guard and the reserves uh, deploying in a way that they've never uh, never had in the past. So. That's folks who didn't receive the same active duty training and, uh, and are now tasked with things like coronavirus relief uh, efforts and, and security on Capitol Hill. So, so there, really, there really has been um, a lot of focus on this over the last 10 years. And frankly, I can't say a perfect balance of, of how, to, how to reset these folks, how to recalibrate things and, and how, to, how to let the force completely heal before uh, you know, another major conflict develops.
6: I would just want to add one thing to I think, sure. what we're saying. And that's that, you know, the 30,000 troops that have kind of gone over there five times or more in it's a, it's a catastrophic thing. And I think any of us who've experienced that understand that difficulty. Um, and obviously, the VA system has been overwhelmed because of it. Um, but it also absolutely pales in comparison uh, to what the Afghan people have had to endure on a day to day basis without any possibility of redeployment um, or any reprieve from the the war that's been affecting their country. Um, so in some ways we should also put that into the conversation as well. I think, um, to your question about, you know, what's it like to come back and just have this, have this tremendous disconnect.
1: Tim, what's it like to return from war to adjust to civilian life?
6: Um, I think, you know, who I was before and who I was after I experienced the war is completely different. Um, and yet many of my friends, um, were unable to see that because so many of my mannerisms and, you know, my physical appearance and everything else was exactly the same. And, you know, they tried to understand and empathize with it, but there's just no way to kind of explain what war is to people. And so inevitably, there's just this tremendous um, space that exists between you and the people in your life. And everyone who comes after knows one person and everyone who knew you before kind of knows another person. And there's no way to bridge that within your friends and family.
1: I want to hit uh, two of the points that you made there, Tim. First of all, um, the, the return um, is not easy, and I can't imagine, especially in a, to a country that hasn't uh, gotten daily updates and has almost forgotten that we've been in this war for as long as we have. But you made a point about the Afghan people, and I want to play a call uh, from someone we asked our listeners to call in and, and tell us what their thoughts were about this. I want to play a call and get your reaction to that, Tim.
5: I'm very concerned that announcing the withdrawal of troops in advance makes the last soldiers to leave targets for hostiles in their area. Also, I'm concerned that if we don't leave the leadership in that region with adequate power, then a power vacuum will create a situation where we have to rush in again within the next decade. Your thoughts,
1: Tim?
6: So I understand those concerns and I, I empathize with them, but the reality on the ground is borne out. You know, after 20 years, we couldn't um, install a stable and capable government. And although we're indebted to Afghanistan because of what we've done there over that time, um, I think there's a general difficulty that Americans have with seeing trouble abroad, whether it's Uyghurs in China, whether it's how North Korea treats its people, wanting to do something. And knowing that that's the right thing to do, but sometimes the right thing to do is also impossible. And I don't think we're capable of really reconciling those two notions in our mind.
1: Leo, after U.S. troops are withdrawn, will the U.S. be providing any financial support or other type of support to the Afghan people, uh, government and or military?
5: Yeah, so we heard from Pentagon officials yesterday that the uh, the U.S. taxpayers will still be helping with a lot of uh, a lot of issues regarding Afghan security, financially at least, uh, paying for some of the air force, paying for some of the personnel there. But but uh, the president said the next couple of months are really going to determine what what the long term commitment is and what that means. He said that there will be a diplomatic presence there uh, in Afghanistan, but. Was sort of vague on what the actual military presence might be. Will it be just a traditional, uh, you know, military cadre that's that's surrounding the the uh, embassy there? Uh, will it be something more? Will it be some semi-permanent rotations there to continue to help with training? That that all remains to be seen. It could still be a, a pretty fluid situation. The president also said that he's he's seeing the withdrawal from Afghanistan not as an end to the war on terror, that there's still plenty of threats out there and he's looking for uh, for ways to address that. We heard from the um, Senate Armed Services chairman yesterday, Jack Reed, that he wants to see a permanent presence somewhere in the region, not in Afghanistan, but some sort of military response force. So Uh, So this doesn't end. This doesn't mean that the deployments and the the pressure on the military is completely over. It just means the actual boots on the ground in Afghanistan are, are, are coming out.
1: Tim, I want to get your thoughts on this, because during the uh, almost two decades of this war, few, if any, of the presidents of this country have had direct ties to veterans in their own family, uh, with the exception of President Biden, whose son, Beau, uh, was a veteran. And I'm wondering if when you look at that, does that give you any sort of solace? Do you feel as though this president is more understanding and empathetic toward the veterans community and also what our armed services uh and our uh, armed forces are being asked to do
6: i think most of the commanders in chief that we've had with the exception of probably uh, president trump have a deep understanding of what veterans experience and what what their lives are like um they go to bethesda they go to walter Reed, um they talk with veterans they're sympathetic they visit overseas so there is that i think understanding what President Biden brings that um, maybe others have, but they just haven't talked about is the trauma that he's experienced in his life, whether it was losing his family um, when he was very young or losing his son, Bo. You know, there's things that happen in our lives that permanently and irrevocably change us and they never go away. And I think people who've experienced trauma, whether it's war um, or otherwise, understand that. And there's a common bond of um, empathy and wisdom that comes with that. And I think that's something that President Biden has.
1: We're talking about reentry, really, um, to civilian life, and I'm wondering what the services are that are available to veterans when they come home. You, you sort of mentioned Walter Reed and and the VA, but is the VA where it needs to be, and do uh, returning uh, members of the armed forces have the support that they need, particularly those who may need mental health services um, after all of the things that we just talked about?
6: So things may have changed since I got out almost a decade ago, but I will say a couple things. One is, you know, during World War II, where I think there's some thinking that um, there's been, there was less incidences of difficulty transitioning then, in part because it took so long to get back home. You would finish fighting in Japan or Germany. You might continue to be stationed there during peacetime for a while. You would get on a boat the boat would take several weeks to get back maybe stopping in hawaii and you were with your unit you were with your your um your men at that time and so there was an ability to decompress when i finished the war in afghanistan we were on a flight a few days later got home um released to our families within you know that day and then within about a month or two i was out of the out of the military with an honorable discharge and so there was a brief class that you were supposed to take about you know, how to get a job and how to do your resume, but almost nothing that I can recall about mental health or the difficulties of transitioning or what the experience of combat that you've just been through is like. And then when you get out into the real world again, uh, there's nothing once you're discharged. You, know, you, you have the opportunity to take part in services at the VA, whether it's mental health or otherwise. And there's veteran support organizations that are out there that are trying to help people, um, but there's no actual coherent program, at least when I was in, To help you go from a battlefield back into you know the city streets in any coherent fashion and so obviously a lot of people fall through the cracks because of that some are able to find uh, the services that they need not all of them are but I, i think that in addition to that we've medicalized the experience of combat so much and there is actual psychological issues with you know ptsd and obviously um many other experiences that people have but there is also something just essential about the nature of war and of combat that is kind of fundamentally human that isn't necessarily treated by psychology. I don't know necessarily how to treat it. It's something I've negotiated and thought through and tried to work through over the past decade. Um, but I think most people who've been at war understand that aspect of it, even if they don't see the need for psychological or medical services.
1: What do you mean by that? I want to understand what you're saying there a little bit more. Do you mean that uh, there's a a societal gap that um, that people just don't understand what war really means and and empathize with it. I, I think partly what um what happened with this war in particular was you had the events of of September eleventh. They were very traumatic. They were visual. They, you know, they were it was it was huge. And so the the immediate response to that, I think people understood in some ways. But then you have decade two decades later, people just really, you know, in some areas moving on and some areas not just not remembering um, that this is happening. So is that what you mean in terms of there needing to be more just like a sense of of what we are doing as a country and, and what wars we're involved in?
6: I think it, you're, you're hitting on something. So when 9-11 happened, everyone was immediately in a kind of very global way and certainly American way, um, traumatized and recognized in that moment that we lived in an unsafe world, where anything could happen and there was no sense of fairness to how things went. And many people, particularly probably in New York or who were directly affected by the attacks, that carried through the rest of their lives and continues to carry, carry through that. Many people though, faced with that kind of um, chaos, I think, turned away from it and they wanted nothing to do with it because how can you really go about your lives and you know go to work at Starbucks and do your kind of normal routine when you live in a world so fundamentally unsafe. But when you go to war and, you know, the best soldier in your platoon steps on an IED and there's no sense of that, there's no way to justify why the best person in your platoon gets killed um, other than just luck and chaos and chance. And so it forces you to challenge a lot of your very core beliefs, whether that's um, religious beliefs, moral beliefs, um, beliefs about what humans are capable of. You know, it it forces you to see the world in an entirely different way that it's impossible to come back from because once you've seen it, it's just always with you. And I think that's one of the things that most civilians who have never experienced that in their lives or have shied away from it for good reasons because it is a horror. Um, It makes it very difficult to connect with them and to have them share a worldview because in their minds, you know, things are working pretty fine. You know, they work hard. They are awarded for it. They have families. Life goes on just as they were kind of promised when they were young. And for many veterans, they just don't see it that way anymore.
1: I want to ask you one more question about uh, where we are today in this country, um, we have we are emerging slowly from a global pandemic. We're already uh, seeing um, mass shootings happening across the country, just right on time as the moment we start opening up again. Uh, domestic terrorism is on the rise in the United States, and uh, we suffered an insurrection at the Capitol uh, back in January, and. One of the things that is emerging from what we know is that some of the people who are involved in, who were involved in the Capitol insurrection had either law enforcement or military ties in the past. And I'm wondering, Tim, and I guess what I'm trying to ask here is like, do you see the sort of, as you mentioned earlier, some veterans come home and sort of fall through the cracks. Is one of those cracks, this sort of radicalized thinking um, you know, that, that that leads folks to want to become involved in some of these conspiracies or wanting to throw over the government or, you know, because we are seeing a certain percentage of, of these groups that do, you know, comprise of like either former law enforcement or former military folks. So is that a danger of not having an adequate system for veterans to come home to, to people uh, who have served uh, abroad to feel like they have a home that that, uh, that they can come to and that um, that will take care of them? Or is this is this, are these people who are just feeling really disaffected, or is it totally something else that we can't define right now?
6: So it's definitely multifaceted, but one thing to start with is that a lot of extremists end up in the military to start with for a whole variety of reasons, whether that's something that they're looking to attain skills through to return to extremist organizations and and spread those skills, or whether they are disenfranchised and seeking meaning in their lives and they find that first in the military and then they return and maybe find it in um, those extremist groups. But I think more broadly than that, because that's still probably a minority of uh, soldiers, services, um, soldiers, sailors, uh, airmen, and Marines, there's this idea that you know you join the military, you take an oath to, sur- to support and defend the Constitution, and you do this in a very profound way, especially if you deploy to war. And then it ends, and nothing else in your life ever gives you that same sense of meaning that you had when you were in the military, and especially when decisions that you were making had life or death consequences um almost every day. And so sent back into the real world without that opportunity, everything else is a little numbing. And so many of the people I think who come out of the military, especially without any kind of clear transition plan to get them out of that mindset and show them that there's meaning to be found in the ordinary aspects of of daily life, they are constantly waiting for moments when that will come back to them. And so I think many veterans, for example, on a flight, you know, will think about what happens if there's a hijacking right now? What would I do? Um, Mm -hmm. What happens if there's a mass shooting here? What would I do? Um, Because they're seeking those moments uh, where life and death suddenly become intertwined and they're able to relive that experience. And so you see this in some of the names of these organizations, you know, Oath Keepers, where they see themselves even in civilian life as adhering to this lifelong commitment that they've taken, which I think is, you know, kind of wrong, but you can understand mentally how you could get to a place where nothing else really matters compared to what you were able to do when you were 20 to 25 years old and so i was shocked that the insurrection happened and i was disappointed but i wasn't necessarily surprised like that it was predominantly veterans that were doing that
1: tim kudo is a marine veteran of iraq and afghanistan and leo shane is the deputy editor at the military times tim and leo thank you so much
5: thank you thank you My
6: name's Chris, I'm calling from South San Francisco. I think it's about time, I'm all for it. You know, you would think by now there would be some sort of real concrete close to this one way or another, but it's still an open sore. There's been so much, you know, American death there. So much money has been poured into Afghanistan over the years, so I think we should bring our troops home and provide assistance from afar let Afghanistan take care of their own business.
5: I'm very concerned that announcing the withdrawal of troops in advance makes the last soldiers to leave targets for hostiles in their area. Also, I'm concerned that if we don't leave the leadership in that region with adequate power, then a power vacuum will create a situation where we have to rush in again within the next decade.
6: When I stepped onto a plane to Afghanistan just over 10 years ago, leaving a pregnant wife behind, I was confident we could end the terrorist threat in Afghanistan, win the war, and soon bring peace there. When I stepped back on American soil on the 4th of July, 2011, I felt like we'd made a difference. Now, almost a decade later, it's clear ground forces in Afghanistan have done all they can to protect America and our allies, including Afghan civilians. Thank you, President Biden for respecting the sacrifice of US and coalition troops by drawing this long and costly war to a close. I hope our nation will grant asylum to the countless Afghans who helped us over the last 20 years, without whom we could not leave with our heads nearly so high. For those who risk their lives to support us, it's the least we can do.
4: Hi, Ken from Ormond Beach, Uh, I'm a veteran of the United States Navy for six years during the 90s. I don't believe that we should be in Afghanistan, I don't believe any armies or forces should be in Afghanistan. It's been a hot mess for quite a while, and uh, I think everybody should pull out of there and let them handle it on their own.
1: All right, folks, that's all we have for you today, and it feels so great to be back in the host chair. I appreciate you tuning in every day. And before we go, I want to give a quick shout out to the team who puts this show together. Our line producer is Jackie Martin. Our producer crew is Ethan Oberman, Jose Olivares, Meg Dalton, Patricia Jacob, and Lydia McMullen-Laird. Our senior producer is Amber Hall. Vince Fairchild is our board operator and broadcast engineer. Jay Howitt is our director and editor, and Polly Irungu is our digital editor. David Gable is our executive assistant, and Lee Hill is our executive producer. Thanks so much for listening. I'm Tanzina Vega, and this is The Takeaway.